You're listening to Podnosis, the pulse of the healthcare industry. So the hypothesis would be cash price higher than negotiated price because cash is a unilaterally determined price by hospitals. So, so that's a hypothesis. But turn out that in many cases, the cash price is lower or the same as the negotiated price. That was G. Bai, a professor of health policy and management. Stay with us. We'll hear more from her soon. From Fierce Healthcare, I'm Teresa Carey. At the end of 22, pretty clear fault lines were established on financial performance, with payers bringing in record profits while providers continued to struggle. In the first quarter of 2023, that separation certainly still exists, but new pressures have popped up that pose headwinds to both industries. Senior editor Paige Minemeyer and staff writer Dave Moyo sit down to dive into the financial trends to watch and also to recap their coverage of Q1. Here they are. Dave, great to join you again. Hey, Paige. Happy to chat. <laughs> it feels like this is becoming a regular thing at this point. Yeah, you know, we work together. It happens. <laughs> <laughs> a couple of months ago, we sat down to chat about the the trends to watch in the, the payer and provider spaces coming out of the, the fourth quarter. And... Now we've gotten our first look at how companies on our respective beats performed in Q1. And it seems like the while the broader landscape is pretty similar, some new trends have emerged as well. How did Q1 look for providers? Uh, we can dig into some specifics in a minute, but you know, what are some of the major trends that you're seeing? It's a lot of what we we're seeing in Q4 2022 continuing sequentially. A little bit of mitigation in terms of just how dire the uh, labor issue is, but it's continuing to be an ongoing pressure and anticipation that uh, demand is slowly recovering from the worst of COVID. You know, the beginning of the earnings season, the for-profits released their numbers before the nonprofits. And I think HCA was first and came out of the gate and said, yeah, we're upping our guidance for the rest of the year. Um, We saw a lot more patients than we were expecting to see. Revenues are higher than we thought. Tenet came out and said the same thing. And that's kind of been the ongoing trend across a lot of these is that net patient service revenues are up and it's on the back of more patients showing up, um, whether that be deferred care or just a general, hey, let's let's get back to the hospital. Although I guess I should say outpatient growth continues to be a very large deal there. So last quarter when we sat down to this discuss this, you know, labor issues were top of mind for pretty much every provider exec. Um, and that issue doesn't seem to have gone away over the past couple of months. Um, have you seen their thinking change at all on this issue? I mean, it's it's still a concern. I would say much more in the context of macro level inflation and wage growth, more so than say a year ago when it was staffing interruptions. We can't get uh, people to work in our uh, locations, and then suddenly we can't run our hospitals at full capacity. There's less of that, I would say, and more it's just, hey, it's costing more and more money to uh, employ people, especially skilled labor. Um, there, are, All the health systems generally have initiatives ongoing to address this issue. Those are progressing as they said they would. Lots of uh, retention and sign-on bonuses, flexible staffing initiatives, um, Interesting care models that generally rely less on uh, humans. (laughs) But uh, I'd say there's been sequentially less premium labor utilization, which has been a large driver of those costs. 
but uh, we still see some HCI gnome in particular called it out. They still are having some staffing related capacity constraints that are affecting how many patients they can get in the door. Um, so I would say generally, yes, it is still a concern. It is, I don't know. I, it's still a concern. <laughs> Let's just say still a concern <laughs> then. <laughs> um, I would like to just throw out though on the subject of labor expenses, we have been seeing a good chunk of layoffs across the industry, job eliminations, reorganizations. Um, those generally tend to hit non-patient-facing positions, um, management, executives, that type of thing. And I'd say some of the most public ones we've seen have been uh, smaller organizations, less so the large health systems we're talking about today, but those are happening. Um, cost reductions are on the mind of a lot of these organizations. Um, and you touched on this a little bit at the outset, but you know, you've seen volumes at, at, at these providers increase over the past several months, but you know, margins haven't jumped in, in tandem for many of them. Um, what are you seeing there? Yeah. So sometimes margins in, have increased, but not to the full extent that whatever percentage of revenue you're seeing jump happens. And, there's a corresponding cost in providing care. You get more patients, you're spending more money on labor to care for them, you're spending more money on supplies to care for them, et cetera. That being said, there's also been sort of a payer mix situation developing across a good chunk of these organizations where their government payers, which pay less money per patient generally, are becoming a slightly larger portion of that total pie. Um, there's a very clear example here in community health systems. Uh, they reported a 40 cents per share loss for the quarter, despite seeing way more patients. They, during their earnings call, their executive said that they did expect some of their government payer mix to increase just as a natural result of inflation, since a lot of commercial members don't want to pay for copays, they might avoid care. So then you just naturally get some of the ones where the government are footing the bill. But for them, it turned out that almost all the patients increase they were seeing was coming from lower paying Medicare Advantage plans, which caught them off guard, caught the market off guard. Their stock price was not happy about that. But um, we've seen that happen. We've seen uh, some of that being reported among the nonprofits as well in their filings, a little bit less explicitly since that's just the nature of how these are reported. Um, not so much in an investor's call where the investors get to hammer on them about it, but it seems to be affecting a lot of systems that the payer mix is not shifting in the way that a health system would like. You just mentioned the nonprofits, and we're we're sitting down to have this discussion a little bit later than we did last quarter. So you have more to to kind of show about them than we did before. Um, you know, are you seeing different trends among those providers compared to the to the non or the for profits? I mean, to me, it's just a reminder sometimes that a lot of these health systems and healthcare is a very geographically focused. Uh, market. It's a, you're working with, was my market being particularly hit by COVID a year ago? Or um, is this side of the country have different policies that affect the types of patients we see? And why I'm saying that is that a lot of the ones that were having very negative mar operating margins three quarters ago or so, um, a lot of them are still in tough shape. Uh, I feel like I've noticed that it's the Catholic systems this quarter that are most often reporting the very heavy operating losses. And uh, I mean, it's worth noting some, generally a lot of the larger uh, 
Catholic organ nonprofit health systems do tend to have a little bit higher of a government payer mix. I think it's common spirit loves to say that they're the largest provider of Medicaid services in the country and they did not have a great quarter. <laughs> um, the, yeah. the, a lot of their expenses are still high and they're getting paid less for that. Um, it's worth noting that one of the different things that we look at with the nonprofits as opposed to the for-profits is their investment portfolios. And compared to a year ago when the stock market was not happy, uh, right now they're seeing a decent amount of relief coming from their investment returns. Um, some of that is continually going up. I mean, we've seen some hiccups with things about the uh, debt ceiling and stuff maybe affecting the market, but generally uh, investments are in a much much more of an upward place than they were a year ago, let's say, for these health systems. Now, I'd like to say this is all what's going on in health systems. <laughs> a lot of up and down. Payers seem to keep making money uh, from yeah. my perspective. Uh, that's what we <laughs> talked about last quarter. Is that still going on? Generally, overall, the top line is yes, that's that's the, the case for them. All six of the big national insurers that we cover were profitable in the first quarter. So, uh, you know, United Health was again ahead of, of everyone by far. They had about $5.6 in profit. So f- to put that in context, the next highest company that we covered, CVS, earned about $2.1 So that's a pretty <laughs> large discrepancy. They've led the way basically every quarter that I've been actively covering <laughs> health plans. <laughs> um, and that's, you know, dating back years at this point. Um, so that's that's kind of a trend to watch kind of at what point will UHG's hot streak end or will it end? Um, you know, and we're, <laughs> I would say we're not really seeing an indication on the horizon that it will. Um, the company just keeps getting bigger and it's really not showing any signs of slowing down on its growth. Um, one trend that we did touch on in last quarter that's definitely still in play here is just the diversification of these huge companies. Um, And that really plays a role in, in shielding them from some of the financial impacts that would really be felt at a a much smaller, more kind of singular type of company. Um, Again, you using UHG as an example, (laughs) United healthcare alone, they have 50 million approximately uh, members enrolled in their plan across different types of coverage. And at Optum, they house one of the three largest PBMs in the com- in the country, as well as one of the largest employers of physicians in the country. So, you know, just having all of those parts at play makes it a lot easier for them to to weather, for example, a, a downturn in, in membership at their health plan or, you know, the reforms to PBMs, which I'm sure we'll talk to talk about here in a minute. <laughs> oh yeah, definitely want to circle around on those PBMs. But uh, <laughs> maybe before then, CMS rolled out a couple of major rules in Medicare Advantage over the past couple of months. One of them is impacting risk adjustment audits and the other payment rates for 2024, which were lower than payers hoped. Uh, have you heard anything just in the earnings calls how the insurers might be feeling about these changes? Yeah, this was a major topic of conversation. Um, so it was kind of a mixed bag for for MA plans. Uh, they they scored a win on the RADV rule, which is the the risk adjustment piece that you mentioned, and that's a key factor in how they're paid. So while they would have loved to see CMS just ditch the rule, and they talked about that, um, they did get a kind of a reprieve on the timing around 
changes to risk adjustment, which are going to be phased in over the next several years rather than just kind of dropped in their laps um, immediately. They also mm. did catch a break on how CMS was going to kind of backdate updates. Originally, they pitched backdating changes to risk adjustment to 20, 2011, which would you know, chain, mean that they're on the hook for <laughs> overpayments dating back to 2011 if there were some that were uncovered. But in the final version of the rule, they're just starting it in 2018. So that gives them a gap of several years where they're kind of <laughs> off the hook on those overpayment, kind of needing to repay the government on those. Um, there was also some grousing on the earnings calls about eliminating the the fee-for-service adjuster, which is, you know, kind of a cornerstone of how they were really pushing back on this rule, you know, in the proposal. Essentially, that adjuster would balance out data to account for differences in how Medicare Advantage operates compared to fee-for-service Medicare. So they they kind of felt like the data wouldn't be fair to them if they were really held accountable in the same way that, that a fee-for-service program is. So losing that adjuster, they were pretty upset about that, but they, they, they kind of had a, a mix of wins and losses there. Um, they did also catch a break kind of <laughs> on their payment rates for, for 2024 as CMS had originally proposed a 1% increase for, for payment rates that they increased to 3.3% after payers kind of freaked out <laughs> on the proposal. So it's not as much of an increase as they would have wanted, but um, it's an increase nonetheless. So it's kind of, a, again, a mixed, a mixed um, bag there. Um, one thing to think about in MA that didn't really come up during earnings this quarter, but will be something to watch, um, is around the star ratings for the program. So CMS kind of eased how stringent they were being in, in those determinations during the pandemic, just to kind of, as part of the many kind of flexibilities that were offered to the industry during that time. And they've returned to their more kind of stringent approach uh, for this year. And, and payers are kind of feeling the pain around that. So like, for instance, CVS disclosed that the number of MA members that it has in four-star higher plans decreased to 21% compared to, I believe it was 87% last year. So that is a huge blow to, to bonus payments in the program and kind of the program looking forward. They expect, for instance, to take a hit of, you know, between 800 million and 1 billion on the star rating decline. So that's going to be a trend to watch. Gotcha. And uh, we'll stay a little bit on the government policy impact topic here. Q1 ended just as states were about to restart Medicaid eligibility determinations, which expect to be a huge endeavor. And we're definitely watching it over on the health systems hospital side of things as mm -hmm. well. So did the payer execs kind of touch on that during the earnings calls? Yeah, that was, that was a huge talking point during the during the earnings window, just be given that, you know, Q1 ends, you know, kind of March 31st. And then at the beginning of April, these companies had the, the flexibility to, to start um, <laughs> doing the redeterminations in, in conjunction with states. So, um, and they expect this to take a, a, a year or more to fully get through this backlog of these determination um, rulings. So, you know, for, for insurers like Centene, which is a, big player in the Medicaid managed care space, you know, they're, they're seeing, they're expecting to see their Medicaid enrollment decline, but you know, they have a huge presence on the AC exchanges. So they're seeing the potential for, you know, an offset there that maybe 
growth in enrollment in the individual market could help, you know, them avoid feeling a huge, huge decline in, in Medicaid. So that's kind of where a lot of plans are looking. They Their hands are tied a little bit in terms of how much they can actually do um, to outreach to, to members as well. So they're not really allowed to make a sales pitch per se. So they can't, you know, if you're a Centene, you can't call up a member who might be at risk of falling off the, the roles during the redeterminations and say, hey, we have an individual market plan that would be great for you. <laughs> the, the most they can kind of say is, well, the AC exchange is there. Um, you can try it and see what your options are. So they've had to kind of navigate a little bit of how do we outreach to people the best way to make sure that they don't lose coverage, but you know we can't go too far into kind of directing them to different areas. So that's been a challenge that they're looking at. Gotcha. Keep continue to keep an eye on that, but uh, definitely. Now, I very much like Congress and the FTC. Would love to hear about PBMs. Uh, <laughs> They've heard plenty about them already. <laughs> oh yeah, oh yeah. Man, I've, there have been quite a few hearings with what seems yes. like the same questions yes. bouncing back and forth. So anyway, in the headlines, lots of scrutiny. The three largest PPMs are integrated with major health plans. Are these companies now sweating any potential reforms that could be coming their way? I think they're sweating specific reforms, but and it, and it's not really surprising to me that you saw maybe in the past couple of months these major PBMs rolling out news that they've have new more transparent, you know, model in their operations or something like that. Mm-hmm. Express Scripts, for instance, uh, launched a new 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 model that's focused on transparency for its clients, as well as a new program that aims to better support, you know, rural independent pharmacies, which are two kind of major complaints that people file against PBMs all the time. The, what will be interesting to watch is whether there will be any action around just the the vertical integration in this space. You know, as as you mentioned, these three PBMs are all sister companies to huge health plans. OptumRx is a sister to United Health, um, Caremark and Aetna, and then Express Script is owned by Cigna. So those are all <laughs> kind of combined with these health plans. And that came up a lot during conversation, but there haven't been any actual reforms you know, or, or policy changes suggested that that these deals could be looked at again, given that they're long settled years years later, and and CVS was settled in a, in a legal case by a, a federal judge. So, any action that could be taken on that front, whether it's the FCC, FTC decides to step in, or or you know legislators decide they want to look more closely at that, there would be huge implications for the industry as a whole if action moves there, just based on. You know, providers are also doing some of this vertical integration stuff. And, mm-hmm. you know, if, if there's a lot of movement around integration in the industry, that could be a huge problem for a lot of these companies. Um, for now, though, I mean, most of the reforms that are in Congress right now are being talked about are around increasing transparency and, you know, allowing people greater, you know, clients and employers and, and patients a greater look at, you know, drug costs and things like that. So I don't think they're hugely concerned about a lot of that. They're fighting back against, you know, a proposed ban on, on spread pricing models. But even if that was eliminated, it wouldn't cripple them by, you know, financially or cripple their business. Gotcha. Definitely. They've got a lot of, a lot of fingers in a lot of pots. So I'm sure yes. they, this is exactly, I suppose, why they've been diversifying. 
Yeah, we could talk about integration in, in healthcare for a long time. <laughs> uh, well, I mean, maybe that's another episode for now. I think uh, I think we've covered a lot of bases. Um, thank you so much yeah. for sharing what's going on your side of the fence. Yeah, great to connect with you again as always. Price transparency has become a sticking point in the conversation on healthcare costs. On January 1, 2021, hospitals across the country were required to publish the prices for their most common procedures and a comparison tool on their websites. Health insurers were required to follow suit in July of 2022. To date, consumer groups, data analysts, and even lawmakers have been critical of the hospital's compliance with the requirements. Payers have been better about releasing more data out of the gate, but the scale and disorganization of those numbers have made it difficult for easy price comparisons. But some studies have taken a closer look at pricing data published over the past couple years. These works have revealed trends that could help policymakers identify healthcare markets where prices are not being set competitively by hospitals and health systems. Staff writer Dave Moyo spoke with Johns Hopkins health policy and economics researcher G. Bai on her work exploring healthcare prices. They also discussed whether the requirements are enough to move the needle on rising healthcare prices. Here they are. Hello, G. Thank you so much for joining us today to speak on Podnosis. Thank you, Dave, for having me. Ah, absolutely. I'm excited to have you. Uh, you've been fairly prolific on healthcare price transparency research within the past couple of years. And particularly within the past few months, I should say. Speaking broadly, I've seen that you and your colleagues have dug into data published by thousands of hospitals for common shoppable services, and among other findings have shown that commercial negotiated prices can vary widely across those hospitals or even within the same hospital, it turns out. Uh, We could spend plenty of time just breaking down all those findings, but I'd like to highlight for our listeners a couple of your more recent investigations that I think have some broad implications for individuals and groups shopping for services. So one of those is a study published in April's Health Affairs that compared cash prices to commercial negotiator rates and charge master prices. What was the bottom line trend that you and your colleagues found there? And what does it imply for future price negotiations? We found, in general, the cash price and the negotiated price are similar. You know, the hypothesis would be cash price lower sorry, hash price higher than the negotiated price because cash is a unilaterally common price by hospitals and dealing with very powerless payers, right, individual patients. And on the other hand, we have the negotiated commercial price, which was done between hospitals and insurance companies. Insurance companies supposed to be powerful representing a large group of patients, right? So, So that's a hypothesis. But it turned out that in many cases, the cash price is lower or the same as they negotiate the price. Interesting. And why, like, as you said, that's a bit of an unexpected finding based on what you would uh, hope to see. Do you think that there's a reason or did you see any evidence of why that trend played out? We believe uh, that shows us the insurance companies are not always efficient in negotiating price. It's not because they don't know how, but because the incentive is somehow not very well aligned, right? In some cases, the insurance company actually make more money if the spending is higher. So that creates some kind of perverse incentive, preventing insurance companies to do extremely good job. 
And also many payers do not have sufficient knowledge. They don't know what the price they pay is good or bad. Uh, and then on the other hand, the hospitals might want to offer a competitive cash price to attract patients who are either don't want to use insurance or don't have insurance. So, so the, in that case, you know, we, we are seeing a relatively competitive cash price, but relatively inefficient or you know, high commercial negotiated price. Interesting. The, the cash price co- competition is working as intended, and the negotiated price has a combination of incentives and uh, visibility issues that are kind of impeding that competitive component, correct? Exactly. So the conclusion, simply speaking, is that the insurance is very effective in pulling the risk, right? But mm-hmm. it is not very effective in our current system in negotiating the best price. Let's look at another one of your studies, another recent piece published in JAMA Network Open back in March, which looked at commercial prices for a brain MRI, a common screening procedure, and then looks for trends among the different types of hospitals that tended to charge more. What were some of those common hospital characteristics you saw with uh, pricing trends, and how do they potentially explain a higher charge? The most interesting finding is that the nonprofit and government hospitals actually have a higher price than for-profit hospitals. You know, people's com- conventional wisdom would be, for most people, that mm-hmm. the uh, for-profit hospitals are very profit-driven, so they probably would have a more aggressive pricing strategy. But it turned out that they have a more competitive price, probably because they want to grab market share in a relatively competitive market. But I think our study really uh, contradicts the conventional wisdom that nonprofit and the government hospitals have a better price. Just speaking broadly, is it possible that a for-profit has more pressures to pursue more competitive prices? I think that is reason. And another reason might be they are better at con- controlling their cost. Right. Now, if you have a more lean cost structure, you can afford to go relatively low. But you know, many nonprofit hospitals have a relatively bloated, less efficient management structure and cost structure. So that might become a barrier uh, in their journey to contain cost. Interesting. And uh, like I said, those two studies are among the latest of your work. You've been looking at this for a couple of years, um, definitely in the immediate wake since the uh, regulations went into place that required the hospitals to begin publishing their prices for uh, common shoppable services. So I want to ask, as someone who's been deep in the weeds on this for a little bit, are there any longitudinal trends you think are noteworthy uh, over the past couple of years among these data Probably along the lines of compliance or data uniformity, I think is a go-to discussion point. We have definitely seen higher compliance among hospitals, but it's still not perfect. So there are different ways to look at compliance level, right? Like our way is to look at whether hospitals disclose their negotiate the price, which in my opinion is the most important price point to disclose. Of course, cash price, you know, child master price, um, and, and these. So some d- different people might have a different conclusion regarding the same hospital. Some will say this hospital is not compliant at all, or some people will say this hospital has very good compliance. It really depends on what what data point you are looking for. But uh, that's why we're seeing different numbers regarding compliance rate. Some are saying only five percent, you know, thirteen percent, and in our study. Uh, if we are using commercial negotiated price 
as a benchmark, we're seeing about half of hospitals complying. But remember, this is already a couple of years after the rule came into effect. That means we really need to enforce the compliance if we want to see the impact of this rule. I love that you brought up enforcement because you led me right into the next question. Um, price transparency and this whole debate that, hey, it's been a couple of years in. Uh, it's not quite where we would hope it would be. That's gotten the attention of federal lawmakers. Um, We've seen some hospital industry leaders in the hot seat during some hearings with legislators in the House and the Senate threatening that, you know, they might need to bring down the hammer with additional requirements. We've also seen within the past few weeks that CMS will be ramping up its enforcement timelines for those facilities, kind of a bit of a tighter leash as it tries to make sure these hospitals are doing what they've been told to do. Do you think this additional scrutiny from lawmakers and from CMS will do very much to iron out some of those remaining compliance wrinkles? Yes, I do believe. Think about the compliance rate for the insurance companies. In uh, in 2022, uh, on July 1st, the transparency in coverage final rule got implemented. That is a price transparency rule for the insurance companies. In that rule, the penalty is extremely high. It's based on per covered member. So insurance company basically cannot afford to not comply. So what's the result? Everybody complied. So if you look at the same transparency rule, but in hospital setting, we're seeing, as we found, about half of the compliance rate. Then, then we dig deeper, look at the fee, the fine, and we, we can see the fine is much lower compared to the fine for the insurance companies. So I think the penalty really uh, is making a huge difference. Interesting. Um, it'll be interesting to see if, uh, as the additional scrutiny comes in, maybe we'll see a similar level of uh, enforcement being placed upon the hospitals. And you know, it, it is worth saying, like as you mentioned just now, the Payers jumped on board pretty quick. I've been to some in- industry panels and spoken with hospital sources, and they've suggested that transparency is adding some administrative burden with relatively little payoff in terms of the end goal of reducing prices for uh, individuals and groups. So gee, maybe the million-dollar question here, have we seen evidence or even early possibilities that price transparency as a whole, is facilitating downward pressure on hospital prices? It is still too early to tell, especially given that there are many floating parts, right? inflation, and then after COVID. So I think from a scientific, statistical perspective, it's relatively hard to tease out the impact of price transparency rule on pricing, given that given this short period of time in terms of availability of data. I'm eager to see maybe a few years down the line if we'll get a more conclusive uh, empirical answer on the role of price transparency might ultimately have. Uh, but- also, I want to add, Dave, transparency is not panacea. If people are willing to believe that just we turn this one dial, let's have the price transparency, the price will collapse, then they're being naive. There have why we we need the press transparency rule in the first place. Why don't we need that for let's say car market, supermarket, right? We don't because there's some structural difference that prevent hospitals 
to prevent hospitals from disclosing the price in the first place. But if you look at the plastic surgeons, right, they disclose price in the most informative way without any regulation, without any legislation. So that's a question we have to ask. What is making the difference in their tendency to disclose price? Therefore, I think we are, press transparency, we are addressing the symptom. There have to be simultaneous attention to the structural problem. Otherwise, just by relying on price transparency, we won't see a transformative change on pricing side. Uh, I, I love that just as a soundbite. Price transparency is not a panacea. We have to focus on the whole picture here. I, I think that's spot on personally. Um, so, <laughs> so uh, as I said, I don't want to let insurance off the hook. Um, as we've been alluding to through this conversation, payers have also been required for uh, nearly a year now to publicly disclose their own network negotiated rates for specific procedures and providers and similar goals in mind, you know, make the information available. Hopefully it helps control the prices to an extent. And uh, like you said, they jumped on board. We've seen plenty of data and some would argue too much data uh, with plenty of analyses and news articles saying these are gigantic file dumps, overwhelming volumes, and on top of that, some general disorganization. There's redundancies, there's not non-uniformity that make it difficult to look at. Now, you and some co-authors recently published an article in Health Affairs Forefront with a guide for fellow researchers on how best to standardize those data into a usable body of data. Additionally, you and the co-authors gave recommendations for insurers and policymakers to make the data more usable as a resource for bringing down costs and spending. Now, the first of those two might be a little bit too in the weeds for a podcast discussion, so I recommend everyone who's interested track it down and give it a read. But uh, could you share some of those usability suggestions that are outlined in the paper for payers and policymakers? Mm-hmm. Uh, these are very simple, straightforward guidelines for the payers to disclose in a way that is understandable to external users. For example, reduce or eliminate redundant files that create a lot of cost for users. And then let's say when you disclose drug price, the physician administers a drug, you want to disclose if this is only for the drug product or it also includes a facility fee. You know, something like that, that without the small changes, the data, which is huge, won't be useful. And then that will completely compromise the usability um, and the intention of the law. So so I feel uh, this is a very honorable goal to change the market dynamics through price transparency. But if in the rulemaking process, we're using a guideline, right, we we don't make the data useful, then eventually the, the rule won't be able to get the opportunity to try whether it's useful or not. And, and second, you know, I, I think eventually we, we lose a great opportunity um, to understand the data and to explore ways to uh, improve the market. So, so I think there's direct and indirect impact of not doing anything about usability. Got it. Our nation, our public, to think about how can we bring more market forces to the healthcare system. It should not be the end point. Many people think, Let's have the press transparency, then that's it. Then have the compl- complacency. I think that, that that is totally opposite to what we should do. We should keep exploring 
opportunities in addition to price transparency, trying to bring more dynamics, vitality to the healthcare market, because that will eventually help American people. Got it. Well, gee, thank you so much for joining the show and uh, sharing your knowledge. It was great having you. Thank you so much for having me, Dave. Thank you for listening to Podnosis. I'm Teresa Carey. You can find more news and stories at FierceHealthcare.com. Next week, we're going to discuss longevity research and the bargaining power of self-insured employers. So tune in Wednesday morning to Podnosis, where healthcare is our beat. I'll jump into the next question in a second, but my cat is snoring. So if you hear that in the recording, just let me know. (laughs) He's like laying here next to me snoring very loudly.